Hello, and thank you for tuning into the Chiropractic Science podcast series. My name is Dr. Dean Smith, and I'll be the host for this interview. I am a clinical professor in the Department of Kinesiology and Health at Miami University and also maintain a private practice of chiropractic in Eaton, Ohio. My research interests relate to understanding how chiropractic affects motor control and human performance. My goals for producing these research interviews are to get the word out about chiropractic research from the experts that are actually doing the research. Dissemination of research findings is an important part of the research process. Publicizing these interviews passes on the benefits of chiropractic research to other researchers, to chiropractors in practice, as well as practitioners from other disciplines. Another goal is to encourage collaboration of researchers to promote future high-quality chiropractic science. And lastly, I'd like to try to motivate and assist practitioners and students alike to pursue research careers in chiropractic science. I'd like to point out that Chiropractic Science has partnered with chirocredit.com to make these podcasts uh, a little bit more interactive. You now have the opportunity to hear the podcast live as well as to ask our guests any questions that you may have. Well, let's get on with uh, today's show. And today I'm really excited to interview Dr. Michael Schneider. Dr. Michael Schneider is a 1982 graduate of Palmer College of Chiropractic and obtained a PhD in rehabilitation science from the University of Pittsburgh in 2008. He was in active clinical practice for 32 years before joining the faculty as an associate professor at the University of Pittsburgh School of Health and Rehabilitation Sciences. Dr. Schneider has published over 40 peer-reviewed articles on various musculoskeletal topics and has received over $3 million in U.S. research grant funding from the National Institutes of Health and Patient-Centered Outcome Research Institute. One of his research projects was a dissemination and implementation grant that involved surveys of U.S. and Canadian chiropractors about their attitudes, skills, and use of research evidence in clinical practice. And we'll be talking about uh, survey today. Dr. Schneider is currently implementing a large randomized clinical trial comparing various types of non-surgical treatment options, including chiropractic care for patients with lumbar spinal stenosis. Dr. Schneider, thank you so much for coming on the Chiropractic Science Podcast. My pleasure. Great. Well, let's uh, start with how did you become interested uh, years back in becoming a chiropractor in the first place? Gosh, it's a long time ago. <laughs> I, started, I started chiropractic school in 1979, to let you know how long ago that was. Um, I don't know. I don't think it was anything um, earth-shattering. It was just that um, sort of I come from a family uh, that uh, of, of um, my parents liked going to chiropractors uh, with a lot of their healthcare problems. So I was kind of, you know, raised that you went to the chiropractor if you had a, sort of a minor healthcare problem. So I was kind of used to it. And uh, when I w went to undergraduate school and thought about getting into the health sciences, I guess I just sort of naturally gravitated towards uh, chiropractic rather than medicine. And I had a little bit of that alternative side to me. So I wound up in chiropractic school. That's great. So now I understand you were in practice for 32 years. Can you tell us about your experiences as a chiropractor? For example, where did you practice and were you in solo practice? What did your practice look like? Yeah. So, um, as you said before, I graduated in 82 from Palmer in Davenport, and I'm from New Jersey originally, so I moved back to New Jersey with my wife and kids and uh, to be around my family, practiced there for about 10 years. I had a solo practice. In fact, I had a home office combination, which was, was very interesting. It was sort of the, 
the chiropractor who worked out of his home. And um, then I moved to Pittsburgh and joined um, another chiropractor in a group practice. And uh, we, when I sold my practice in 2009, we had four chiropractors in our group. So we had a small group practice. And then uh, when I came to the University of Pittsburgh, I started seeing patients here at the University of Pittsburgh in our Center for um, Integrative Medicine. Okay, so you joined the University of Pittsburgh even prior to pursuing graduate studies then? Uh, well, no. Um, as I pursued my graduate studies here, um, there was an opportunity to see patients part-time at the University of Pittsburgh. So I started doing that. When I came on faculty here and sold my private practice, I continued seeing patients part-time uh, at the University of Pittsburgh's um, Center for Integrative Medicine. Okay. We have another chiropractor here who works full-time at the, at, at the University of Pittsburgh still. Oh, that's great. Good stuff. So what was your motivation then after so many years in practice to become a researcher and specifically to do chiropractic research? Well, yeah, that's a long, very long story. Um, I guess I always had sort of research side to me. I mean, even before I entered this PhD program here, I had written some case reports. I was teaching post-grad courses on myofascial pain and soft tissue technique. And um, I, I guess it was relatively easy for me here in Pittsburgh to do this PhD program because of the proximity to where I live. And I knew people at the University of Pittsburgh. And so um, I just decided I wanted to do science on a more regular basis. I guess it's like a lot of things in life, right? You just sort of have a calling to do something and you don't know why. You're just doing it because it's sort of your destiny or something. I don't know. I don't want to sound too philosophical. But this is something I've always wanted to do. And I feel like I'm doing a good job at it because I really love what I do. I've got a good attitude um, and I've got a good aptitude to do this. And it's a good combination. Yeah, that's great. Well, By the well, way, before I forget, we were yeah. talking about practice here. I'm just going to interrupt for one quick second, which I want to tell people who are listening to this. We were able this year, uh, as a result of my connections here at the University of Pittsburgh, I was able to get two chiropractors hired in our VA hospital um, without much difficulty at all. There was, there was a great enthusiasm for including chiropractic services at the VA hospital here in Pittsburgh, which has an academic affiliation with the University of Pittsburgh. So we think that's going to be a great um, step forward for the chiropractic profession. Well, that's really good. Um, and I can see why after we talk about some of your papers, I think people will get a great feeling for, uh, you know, why that would be the case where the academic center would hire the chiropractor. So phenomenal. Now, you have um, uh, published a lot of articles. Uh, and I'm curious, though, before we get into talking about the articles, uh, what was it like going back for the PhD? It was very, very different. It wasn't what I expected, honestly. It was a lot, lot more difficult and rigorous than, than I, I thought it would be. It, was, it took me six years to get that degree. Um, and the, what I found out is that the average time to get a PhD here at the University of Pittsburgh is five years. So it's a lot, a lot of work. And um, it, it's, um, it's something that it takes a certain type of person to do this. And it's really interesting when I, when I meet chiropractors who are clinicians, and they say, oh, yeah, I thought about going back and you know, maybe getting an advanced degree. What do you think? And I tell them, I said, you know, you're going to have to make a choice. Uh, do you want to be doing you know, research and writing all day long, or do you want to be seeing patients? Because you're not going to be able to do both. 
that's eventually what happened with me, right? Is I've slowly now over the years got to the point where I just don't have time to have any kind of regular clinical hours anymore because I'm putting in easily 50, 60 hours a week doing clinical research. So it's literally a, a, a very big lifestyle change. You know, you go from dealing with individual patients' healthcare problems to population health, a different perspective on, on chiropractic, right? Start looking at it from a different, higher um, altitude than you are down on the ground. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think that a lot of times clinicians have some kind of interpretation of, you know, how long it may take to do a PhD and what it might be like. But until you go through it, it's <laughs> something completely different, I believe. Um, well, let's start talking about... And, and, go ahead. I was just going to say one other thing. The other thing that, which I didn't realize, is how important having a PhD degree is in, in the science world. Um, once I got that degree, it, it's almost like you're in a private club where it, it doesn't matter that I'm a chiropractor. It doesn't matter if you're a massage therapist or an acupuncturist or a medical doctor. That PhD seems to trump everything else. And people listen to you and you have this sort of respect and authority that, I, frankly, I was not not prepared for. I didn't realize the, the importance that that brings. And I wish more chiropractors you know, would get into this research game and develop these credentials because I think that's going to really move our profession forward. Yeah, thanks for saying that. Uh, and that's certainly one of the goals of the podcast. We're trying to uh, make people aware of this as, you know, it's just one avenue to try to get this kind of information out there, but uh, phenomenal stuff. So the uh, publications that you've uh, had over these years have been published in a lot of excellent journals like Spine, JMPT, PM&R, uh, Quality of Life Research, and, and many others. And with your background in rehabilitation sciences, what important questions or hypotheses regarding chiropractic do you feel can and should be addressed at this point? Wow, that's another wide open question. Um, well, I think I would preface my remarks by saying that another thing I realized about myself as I went through this program is that I'm sort of an odd bird in the sense that I had a lot of clinical experience before I went back and got my research experience. So if you'll see, people often say, well, boy, you publish a lot of different, on a lot of different topics. What's the common thread here? Well, the common thread is that I was a, I'm a clinician at heart, right? So I spent years and years seeing thousands and thousands of patients. And let's face it, we as clinicians experiment. I know that sounds like a tough word, but it's true. We're experimenting on our patients every day. I mean, we don't have all the evidence to back up everything we do when we have somebody in the room with us. And as sort of a thinking researcher type clinician, that always bothered me. So most of the research questions that I'm trying to answer in my career here now, my second career, are questions I would have wanted answered or questions I would have wanted to have evidence for when I was seeing patients. Um, one of those w formed the basis of you know, my first study, which was comparing um, activator with manual adjustments. I always wondered, you know, is there a difference? Are they equivalent? Are they clinically effective at the same level? Because that's what people say. Um, and I never was sure if that was the case or not. Um, with all you know, honesty, I don't practice activator methods. I, I really am kind of neutral about it. I was just curious, you know, 
does Activator get the same results? And that's what kind of led to that, that, that research question. I've also been curious with our survey research, which we'll talk about in a moment. I'm just curious, what's going on out there in the chiropractic profession with respect to chiropractors' attitudes about evidence-based practice? And so I thought a survey would be a good way of getting at that. And furthermore, could we influence those attitudes with an online education program, um, which we were able to develop and, and, and test and see if that was helpful. Why? Again, because it goes back to my clinical experience that I found that the chiropractic profession needs to kind of pull itself up by its bootstraps with respect to its evidence-based practice literacy. So everything I'm doing is kind of gets back to my clinical days. Perfect. Yeah. So wide open question, but I think you focused it quite nicely there, Dr. Schneider. Uh, now, a paper of yours that came out earlier this year in the journal Spine compared spinal manipulation and usual medical care for acute and subacute low back pain. And that was a randomized trial. Um, can you tell us about your thoughts on the study? What was the motivation? Was this, again, uh, getting back to your clinical practice days? Um, and then if we can talk about some of the, uh, the methods and the key points that you'd like to make about that paper. Sure. That, that was a randomized trial. We had approximately 105 patients. It was three groups, actually. So the idea was to compare activator or mechanical assisted manipulation with manual manipulation. So standard uh, diversified type um, adjustments for the lower back compared with activator adjustments of the lower back. And then the third group was a usual medical care group. What was the motivation? Well, I just spoke to the first part. I was curious how activator and manual adjustments stacked up against each other. But I was also interested how either type of chiropractic care did in comparison with medical care, which, by the way, consisted of, um, in all three groups, patients were treated for four weeks. In the chiropractic groups, they had two adjustments a week for four weeks. So they had a total of eight adjustments over four weeks. It, those who were randomized to the medical group saw the medical doctor three times over the four weeks. So they came for an initial exam. He was able to prescribe simple anti-inflammatory medications. There were no narcotics or um, heavy-duty pain relievers, just naproxen, Motrin, that type of thing. He could give them some simple exercises and advice to stay active. That was the usual medical care. They came back for a two-week follow-up and then a four-week follow-up and were discharged. And those were the three groups. Okay. And so, so anticipating your next question would be, what did we find? Yeah. <laughs> would that be a correct assumption? <laughs> that, is ex that is exactly it. Yep. Okay. So how about I tell you what we find in a nutshell, and then you could ask me more specific questions. Great. So by the way, this was published in Spine, so people can read it. I also published a um, more layman's version of it, if you will, in the American Chiropractor, which. Um, might actually be an easier read for, for most chiropractors, frankly. But what we basically found was we, we looked at the end of treatment. So um, we compared people's baseline with where they were at the end of that four weeks. And what did we compare? We compared Oswestry scores, right, which are a self-report a self measure of self-reported disability function, if you will. And then we looked at their pain scores as well. So zero to 10 um, pain scale at baseline and at the end of treatment. So we looked at those two, osteoestry and pain. And as it turns out, it was a little bit of a surprise to me actually, that the, the manual adjustment group uh, did better than either activator or usual medical care. 
Uh, that's sort of the, the basic, the bottom line. When we followed those patients up at three months and six months, we had sort of a regression to the mean. In other words, the improvements that we saw right after that four weeks sort of dissipated over time. And the groups looked pretty similar at three months and six months. Having said that, to me, the, import, the importance is how a patient feels now, right after treatment, rather than whether how they feel three or six months afterwards. Because as we know, people have back pain that comes and goes, or they have an acute little episode. And if we can get them over that acute episode, to me, that's the public health issue. What, what treatment will get somebody better quicker and faster, back to function, reduce their pain quickly? If they have another episode six months from now, heck, that's, another, that's a whole other issue. I was really more interested in the, in the short-term results. Got it. Well, I think you answered uh, uh, my question, actually, uh, which my next question was going to be, well, what do you think could be a way to keep those uh, pain numbers and the disability numbers lower over the successive months? But I, I think you answered it pretty well uh, by saying, you know, that's really a different ball of wax and talking about the, you know, the natural history of, of these conditions. But um, I'll throw it out there anyhow. What, what do you, what are your thoughts on how, how we may be able to uh, try to keep those numbers better in the longer term? In other words, prevent recurrence or prevent chronicity? Yes. And again, I think those are two separate questions. You know, um, preventing chronicity, I think, personally, this is my personal opinion, not necessarily evidence-based, but my personal opinion about preventing chronicity is to treat people in the acute phase better, right? So if people have acute back pain, they go to a medical doctor, you know, in plain English, that medical doctor kind of jerks around with the case for six weeks. And when they're not getting better, then they start doing something. Well, by that point, that patient may already be on a path to chronicity. I think if we get patients with acute pain treated by chiropractors sooner rather than later, we can prevent chronicity just by getting rid of the acute pain in the acute phase. So I think that's, and that's where I think some research is going to have to go. Um, as far as preventing recurrence, now I think we're getting into, you know, lifestyle and exercise um, and weight loss and other um, factors that, frankly, a lot of chiropractors ignore. We can't just expect to um, prevent recurrence by having somebody come in for an adjustment once a week or once a month. Um, that, that kind of concept, I think, is flawed. I think what we need to start doing as chiropractors is thinking a little more holistically. We want to prevent recurrence. We're going to have to make lifestyle changes with our patients. And that, that requires a whole other skill set, frankly, than just um, adjusting people. Agreed. Uh, it's, you know, most chronic conditions, it seems, are lifestyle related. So it makes perfect sense that uh, recurrent and chronic back pain would require chronic lifestyle change. <laughs> um, well, let's uh, talk about some other papers here. Um, it seems like a theme that has gone through some of your papers was talking about uh, the identity for chiropractors and uh, that the identity uh, should be reliant upon evidence. And this makes sense. Uh, Along these lines, you recently published an article uh, that you mentioned previously talking about U.S. chiropractors' attitudes, skills, and use of evidence-based practice. And this was a cross-sectional national survey. And one of your co-authors, Dr. 
Greg Kramer as one of my favorite people and a mentor of mine. Uh, what were the findings from this paper? Well, we're in the, actually, we're, we're in the process of publishing the next. There'll be a series of papers on this. The first, best, best way of looking at this is that we had three phases to the study. The first phase was just surveying the profession. And we published those findings in the, in the journal Chiropractic and Manual Therapies, which is open access. Anybody can read it. So in there, what we found was we had, we had almost 1,700 chiropractors respond to our survey online, which was pretty good sample size. Um, and interestingly enough, when we looked at the demographics of those people, meaning what was their average age, what percentage were male, what percentage were female, et cetera, it matched up very nicely with previous surveys um, by the National Board of Chiropractic Examiners that probably some of the listeners of, uh, of this podcast have participated in. So our sample looked very similar to the samples that have been done previously. So we think we have a good representative sample of the profession here, of these 1,700 chiropractors that responded. And what we found was very interesting. That we gave them a survey that had three subscores, um, attitudes, skills, and use of evidence. We found that the vast majority of chiropractors had scored really high on the attitudes subscore, which meant you know, they answered positively to questions like, yes, I think research is really important. I really buy into the evidence-based practice paradigm, that sort of thing. That's the good news. Then we looked at the skills subscore, and the skills, the skills subscore, excuse me, a little bit of a tongue twister there. The skills subscore um, was based upon questions like, you know, I feel really confident um, interpreting a randomized trial, et cetera. Those scores were lower than their attitudes. So people generally had a high attitude, but they said, you know, my skills aren't quite as good as my attitude. And then when we asked them questions related to the use subscore, those questions had to do with, well, how often do you go online and look up papers? And how many journals do you read on a regular basis? Right? Questions about the use, those scores were really low. And before chiropractors started getting upset about this, I can tell you this is the same in every other profession that has surveyed its members, including medical doctors, dentists, physical therapists, is this seems to be a common thread across healthcare professionals that they generally say, yeah, I love this evidence-based practice stuff. I'm not kind of, I'm not really that good at it and I hardly ever really use it. <laughs> so that's kind of what, that was sort of the bottom line of our first phase of the study. All right, the great. Second, the second phase involved randomizing people who took the survey into two groups. We gave them access to free, a series of free online educational modules which, by the way, are still free that any chiropractor can take. And I'd be happy to give you the link to that, which you can share um, with the listeners of this podcast. Yes, great. But in any event, we wanted to see if exposing chiropractors to these online modules, if that would make a difference in raising their skill and use levels. We also want to see, is it even feasible to do this on a national scale? Um, that's the results of our second phase, which we're about to publish pretty soon. What we found there was very interesting. Um, we were able to work out this, the IT bugs of this and deliver this online. So that was the good news. The sort of not so good news was that we didn't get very um, good completion rates. A lot of chiropractors didn't complete the online courses. And those who did, it didn't seem to make a big difference in their skills or use. 
Now, again, before people get upset about that, the way we interpret this is that having online education is, is a good thing, but in and of itself, it's not enough to raise the bar with respect to skills and use of MS-based practice. We think that it's going to involve more than just online distance learning. We're going to have to have live courses, other things, if, we really, if the profession really wants to make a difference. And our third uh, phase of the study was we interviewed uh, 30 chiropractors who did the program to do qualitative work, just to ask them about their experiences, find out what they liked to didn't like, so that hopefully we can improve the educational experience down the road. Yeah, it makes sense to me that uh, clinicians from all walks of life, uh, MDs, PTs, uh, chiropractors, etc., uh, would have this kind of pattern that you're you're looking at. Uh, one reason, probably most obviously, is that uh, we don't get significant kind of training in this in our clinical uh, realm. So um, it seems like a uh, a necessary obstacle that we need to overcome. And I'm really glad to hear that uh, that you're involved in trying to get you know, this message across and trying to figure out ways to actually implement it. So thanks very much for, uh, for doing that for the profession. That's, that's a great start. Uh, One other thing I want to add, add there before we move on to another topic is that study was done in cooperation with four other chiropractic colleges. You mentioned Greg Kramer from National College. So I had National College, um, Northwestern Chiropractic College, Palmer and Western States, representatives from those four schools, we worked together as a team on that, that survey and to develop those educational modules. So this was a nice team effort. And what's really nice is that this was all um, paid for through NIH money, which when I graduated in 1982, it was a pipe dream that a chiropractor would ever get NIH funding, let alone something like this, which you know, um, benefits the profession greatly. We've come a long way in 30 years. Oh, no doubt. No doubt about it. Uh, it's phenomenal, you know, what what kind of stuff we're getting funded. Uh, you know, um, I had Dr. Christine Gertz on last month, and we were talking about the Department of Defense grant that she has uh, over $7 million. And uh, there is no way that would have been funded probably even five, 10 years ago, but uh, we've, we've certainly come a long way. And I think we've come a long way fairly quickly. So that studies like yours uh, that are uh, helping us to, to get to these kinds of levels. So very good. Uh, now you've had some ongoing investigation with lumbar spinal stenosis. A paper in Chiropractic and Manual Therapies describes this ongoing study a little bit of 180 older adults over the age of 60 who have had both anatomic diagnosis of stenosis confirmed by imaging and signs and symptoms consistent with that clinical diagnosis. And it looked like uh, the treatment was randomized into a few groups, usual medical care, individualized manual therapy and rehab exercise, or community-based group exercise. How is this study uh, going? Are you still conducting it? Uh, and what can you tell us about the study? Sure. Um, well, first of all, yeah, what the article that you allude to in chiropractic manual therapies is our protocol. We published our protocol. So 
if anybody wants to look at that paper, it gives great detail about the protocol of our study. But we were able to actually um, kick up that sample size from 180 to 240. And we just actually finished last month. Um, we got patient number 240. So we're, we're done with recruitment. Um, and we will be doing our data analysis in February of next year. So we had three groups of 80 patients each. Um, usual medical care group, they saw a physical medicine doc who basically could um, prescribe any prescription medication he wanted uh, except for opioids. So some of these patients were getting Neurontin, some of them were getting um, um, anti-inflammatory meds, uh, they could get antidepressant medication. So this was really very pragmatic. He could prescribe anything he wanted in any combination. And if he thought they were severe enough, he could do an epidural injection or two. Uh, so that, that's a pretty um, heavy-duty medical arm. Um, the other arm of the study was community-based exercise. A lot of people are familiar with the Silver Sneakers program. It was something like that, where we randomized those patients to go to a local community center and participate in these group exercise classes. Why did we do that? Because we're finding, believe it or not, that there are a lot of older adults who are on fixed incomes. They will not pay to see a chiropractor three times a week. They won't, they won't even go to a physical therapist and make a copay three times a week. It's too expensive. So they're going to these community centers and going to these classes just hoping that something will help them. So we wanted to see, is that, is that really helpful or not? And we made it one of our treatment arms. And the third group um, gets a combination of, for lack of a better term, manual therapy and exercise. So this is an individualized approach to that patient where they get some uh, flexion distraction work on their lumbar spine. They, if they can tolerate it, they'll get standard osseous type adjusting of their lumbar spine. We mobilize their hips stretch their muscles, we give them specific exercises. You'd have to read my protocol for, for more details. But those are the three basic groups. We're done with recruitment. We'll start analyzing the results in February. Oh, that's great. <clears throat> uh, I was talking with uh, Dr. Steve Passmore a few months ago, and he's doing some stuff with uh, lumbar stenosis as well, looking at performance. And I, I believe he's got a um, chiropractic arm of that uh, going on. Um, so it'll be interesting to, to look at the results from both of these studies when they get published and, and f you know, find out what it can tell us about how chiropractic or manual therapy can make a difference in these folks. So that'll be, that'll be exciting. Well, I've been in touch with Steve Passmore, actually, and one of my co-investigators on my study is Carlo Amendalia, who's a chiropractor um, in Toronto. And uh, Carlo has, has just completed a trial of 100 patients comparing the same protocol we're using with medical care. He only has two groups, and he, he just completed 100 patients. So Carlo and I are talking about pooling our results together. We've talked with Steve, potentially, about pooling. And this is a great collaborative effort that goes across borders, right? Um, and those of us in chiropractic research are way beyond the U.S. now. Those of us in the U.S. have really reached out to the Canadians, the Europeans. Um, I've been in touch with many people in Denmark and Switzerland. I've been in touch with people in Australia. So this is starting to become a worldwide chiropractic effort, not just a U.S. effort. Yeah, beautiful. 
love it. Love to hear that uh, it's there's no borders on this stuff. It's that's great. So three papers that uh, you've been an author on uh, deal with consensus documents for the chiropractic profession. And I'm interested in, in hearing uh, about these, your experiences, and, and how uh, science plays into these consensus documents. Uh, so the first one was talking about chiropractic care and health promotion, disease prevention and wellness. Another one was dealing with chiropractic care of older adults. And then the third one was talking about chiropractic care for infants, children, and adolescents. And I, th- I see these as really important papers for the profession as they uh, do provide uh, some evidence-based approaches to each of these topics. So what was your experience being on these panels and uh, what can we learn from it? Well, um, quite frankly, some people criticize me for getting involved with those um, consensus processes because uh, a lot of people in the research world don't consider them to be hard science. Um, but Cheryl Hawk, who's really the, been the lead author on those, Cheryl and I had very long discussions about it and said, you know what, these, these three topics, pediatrics, geriatrics, and wellness, those are the three topics for which chiropractic has got the least evidence base. There's not a lot of good evidence uh, for chiropractic care of those conditions. So what are you supposed to do if there's not good evidence? So we're we supposed to ignore um, a, sort of a best practices approach. So we felt that, you know, these topics lent themselves to a consensus process that in the absence of really hard evidence, the best we could do would be to convene, you know, consensus panels and try to come to some reasonable best practices documents that would be provide guidance for the profession. And that's, that's how all three of those came into existence. And they were all funded uh, through NCNSC Foundation generously. So I'd like to acknowledge that funding source. Well, you know, getting back to the idea of uh, that they're not necessarily hard science, uh, I think we could agree. But at the same time, the data that's generated from it, I think are absolutely critical to get to the next stage, which is to actually do the experimentation. So I see them as uh, essential in in the process. So that's just my take. Um, and obviously, I, I think you probably feel the same way since you're involved in those, uh, those papers. But um, yeah, I, I think I think when we don't have the evidence, like you say, you know, in practice, when chiropractors don't have the evidence, essentially what you're doing is uh, some experimentation with people. I mean, that's, I guess that's the bottom line. So uh, if we can gather the evidence and create a framework to develop things and, you know, there's no need to reinvent the wheel on some of this uh, scientific uh the scientific forms of investigation that we have, I think we need to be smart about it and pool our resources like what you're talking about, getting uh, experts from uh, the different countries who have knowledge in a certain field together. Uh, That just seems like a wise thing to me. Well, you know, there's another um, benefit from these consensus documents and best practices documents, and that is the perception of the profession by third-party payers and other professions. So the pediatrics document, by the way, um, I was contacted by our health plan here in Pittsburgh a couple of years ago saying that they wanted to meet with me. Right? So I met with them. This was at a time when they were considering el- eliminating a chiropractic benefit for pediatrics. Um, 
their medical director was so fed up um, with, with, with chiropractors uh, treating infants, and they didn't understand it, right? They, so they were just going to ban it and say, we're not paying for chiropractic treatment for anybody under the age of 16. And when we, when we, they were coming very close to doing that. When we published that paper, they said, oh, this is really reasonable. Would it be okay if we adopted this as our medical policy guideline? That if, if chiropractors follow what's in this paper and follow these practice guidelines, we're okay with that. And I thought, wow, that, what better use of a consensus document, right? It took the wind out of the sails of them being one step away, literally from shutting down chiropractic benefit for kids. Wow. And so this, this, this is showing that we as a profession, right, can come up with some reasonable guidelines. And it's not cookbook. It's not mandatory. It, it, but it shows people that we're looking at this intelligently, rationally, and, and making, making some guidelines for, for general practice. That goes a long way in elevating um, the cultural authority of our profession. Wow, that's really neat. Thanks for sharing that with us. Next, I'd like to talk about a fascinating observational uh, intervention study dealing with a hospital-based standardized spine care pathway. And the study looked at implementing a multidimensional spine care pathway using the National Center for Quality Assurance Back Pain Recognition Program as its foundation. In the study, chiropractors were the main providers. And clearly, the study shows that chiropractors uh, and others uh, can provide high-quality evidence-based care without a lot of expense, and patients seem to be extremely satisfied. I think 95% was the satisfaction rate, if I remember correctly. Um, So with this knowledge and your interest in the identity of the profession, it certainly seems to me that chiropractors could serve uh, as good conservative spine care uh, folks. gateway, if you will, to, uh, to spine care. Would you agree with that? Well, yeah, well, not only would I agree with it, I've published on it, as you know. Yeah, I completely agree with this. I think yeah. that, um, so to speak to this, that article was, um, came out of me meeting a, a chiropractor in Plymouth, Massachusetts, Ian Piskowski. Um, and Ian went to his local hospital, um, Jordan Hospital, and basically said to them, look, you know, um, you guys are floundering as a hospital, which they were. I have a great idea that we should start a spine care center. Let me run it. And I think it'll be, you know, uh, very successful. Well, sure enough, it was to the point where two years ago, Beth Israel Deaconess in Boston came down and purchased their hospital and now wants to um, create several of these spine care centers around Massachusetts. It's been wildly successful. Um, Ian's been able to hire five chiropractors full-time to work in his main clinic, and they're talking about hiring another five to ten chiropractors. And they all practice primary spine care. And in fact, that's the words that we like to use in our articles, primary spine practitioners. That's what chiropractors are. Um, frankly, I don't think there's any debate about this. I mean, Palmer has come out with this identity statement, right, that chiropractors are um, the, the primary contact provider for spine care. It's what we do best. And it's what nobody else does even half as good as us. So um, every survey of, of the, the general public has shown that they believe that chiropractors are the back and neck pain doctors. Now, some chiropractors 
don't like that, and which really surprises me because um, if if we were really that word would really get out, and we were really to be seen and have the cultural authority as being the primary spine providers, we would all be so busy that we wouldn't know what to do with ourselves. But the interesting thing about Ian's model at Jordan Hospital um, is that it's a true interprofessional management of patients, right? So people aren't so concerned about who are they seeing, a chiropractor, a physical therapist, a physical medicine doc. It doesn't matter. What they did there was make it profession neutral, and it's all around giving the best quality spine care to the patients. As it turns out, chiropractors are the best professionals to be running those types of, of centers. And that, that's just one great um, success story. And I think there are going to be more coming down the road. What it tells me is that chiropractic profession is not ready for this new world order of interprofessional care, especially at a, at a primary care level. The, the chiropractor of the future, in my opinion, is not going to be in private practice, solo practice. He or she is going to be working in an interprofessional environment, running a primary spine triage um, uh, clinic. That's, that's really probably where we're going, is we're going to be managing and being like the primary care doctors of spine and probably other musculoskeletal conditions. But this idea that we're a primary care doctor in the traditional sense, frankly, I think that's a pipe dream. I just I think that's a non-starter. And you know, maybe in a couple places in this country, like Illinois and Oregon, it might work, but I don't see it working in 50 states. If we, we can own and capture the spine care market, which is huge, and we should be very happy to be um, taking over that specialty because that's what patients want. If I have a problem, most people are going to want to see a, someone who specializes in that medical problem. They don't want to see a generalist. So I think the chiropractic profession really needs to explore this um, identity much more carefully if we want to really um, thrive in, in this 21st century model of healthcare. Yes, I, I think the spine uh, chiropractor as spine specialist, uh, or I guess whatever term you want to use, we, we deal with the spine, that's for sure. And I, all colleges... Uh, I think uh, you know agree with that, and like you said, Palmer has uh, created the identity there, and so I agree. I think that's the one thing that all chiropractors agree about is that you know we we deal with the spine. So to me, it doesn't seem like much of a, an issue, but um, I guess that's uh, we we will plug on though for sure. Well, I mean, what I've learned here, Dean, is a good lesson: is that when we say that we 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 are spine specialists. Some chiropractors take that as being exclusionary, meaning that I only do spine. Well, that's not necessarily true. Just saying that you're the best at spine doesn't preclude you from, for example, uh, practicing wellness and nutrition with your patients. Like we said before, what's the best way to prevent chronic back pain and recurrent pain by lifestyle changes? So just because I'm good at spine doesn't mean I wouldn't want my patients exercising, wouldn't want to give them nutritional advice, wouldn't want to adjust their ankle or their knee, um, wouldn't want to do soft tissue techniques on their extremities. All that is a natural extension of being good at spine. So once we realize that if you're good at spine, it doesn't mean that that's the only thing you have to do. 
but certainly that's our that's what we do best and that's the niche that we can fill in healthcare right and i'll i'll just add on to that and that is to say since you brought up things like you know adjusting ankles and things like that it's not to say that we can't have effects beyond the spine either it's just that uh we would focus uh i guess or we would be known as the spine person what's really interesting is that you know, I talk to chiropractors who are wearing a spine necklace. They got a spine ring on. They're, they've got, you know, I love chiropractic with spine on their T-shirt, and yet they're telling me they don't want to be restricted to the spine. <laughs> <laughs> um, so if if all the stuff comes out of the spine, let's just talk about spine care. And as you say, if other things, um, other conditions, and other systems are affected by the spine, great. But let's focus on spine care. Enough said, as BJ used to say. <laughs> All right. So as we uh, start to wrap things up, what, what are some of the uh, important things that uh, you'd like to emphasize to, uh, to chiropractors and, and to others listening to this podcast about your research? Well, I, I guess what I would say to people is, you know, that um, don't be afraid of research. It's work. Those of us who are doing research are an odd lot. There's no, no question about it. I don't think that the average chiropractor should aspire to be a research clinician. I don't think the average chiropractor needs to know how to analyze randomized trials. But I do think that the average chiropractor needs to get a little bit more literate with um, evidence-based practice. I'd like to see our state associations and our national associations pushing this agenda a little bit more, You know, getting the word out about um, our online course, which is free, by the way, which I'll give you that link. Um, sponsoring more at, at state association meetings, for example, having an evidence-based practice track. You know, we have to bring ourselves up, you know, into this 21st century, which is an evidence-based practice paradigm. We need to join this game, and we don't have to be perfect at it. We just have to have to raise ourselves up by our bootstraps a little bit, and and be a little more conversant with the terminology. Um, otherwise, we're going to we're going to be on the outcast of society, of, of healthcare society. The other challenge I'd put to the profession is we can't have it both ways. Do we want to be alternative or do we want to be you know, complementary and integrated? If we truly want to be integrated into the healthcare system, that's going to take a paradigm shift in our profession um, where we can't just do everything our way, solo, as an alternative to the bad guys in medicine. Um, if we really want to make Healthcare better in the United States. I think we need to integrate within the mainstream healthcare system and start to change it from within rather than from without. And it yeah. sounds like you and I are both doing that. Well, I, I think uh, you know I got into research for much of the same reasons. Uh, I had burning questions, and for me, um, it wasn't about um, back pain or neck pain per se, but it was about performance, human performance. And so I noticed that with my patients, uh, they seem to improve in their sports performance, uh, their motor control, things like that. And so that's what turned me on uh, to, to chiropractic research. But I think we all have that burning passion uh, from within. And like you say, we're a little bit of an odd, proud uh, chiropractic researchers. But I, I think we do it because we, we wholly love uh, chiropractic. I mean, how could you devote yourself to another degree, like you say, it's kind of grueling, it's different, um, and it takes a lot of uh, time. <laughs> uh, 
Um, how could you do that if you didn't love, uh, you know, your practice years and trying to figure out stuff? So, uh, but I, I really do think that the kind of work that you're talking about with the survey and then educating people and getting chiropractors to the next level, you see, I think there's no reason why we can't do better, uh, to be honest with you, than uh, other professions. And I'd surely love to see uh, your work and uh, the work of others uh, attest to that fact by showing that, hey, chiropractors can get on uh, to this evidence, uh, use it, implement it. And my bias is that when chiropractors use more of the evidence, the lifestyle, etc., uh, that we're going to get better results. And when we get better results, then it's going to be easier to have more people come to us and get the benefits that, uh, that they deserve. I would agree. And I think the other message I like to leave with people is let's give up on this idea that we're trying to prove you know, chiropractic through research. I mean, that's never going to happen. We're never going to prove anything. What we're going to do is just add to the evidence base um, slowly and surely every year, right? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, for sure. It's, it's, uh, it's a process and it will continue to go on and we'll just keep adding evidence and evidence for, uh, you know, various things that, uh, that we study along the way. So no doubt about it. So I really enjoyed the, this conversation, Dr. Schneider, and I appreciate again, you taking the time to, uh, come on to the podcast with us. Uh, do you have any concluding remarks? Um, no, not really. Okay. Thank you for the time. It was, it was a pleasure to share some experiences. Yeah. Thank you so much. And good luck with the, the future studies that you have. And I'm going to be really interested to hear about the stenosis study. That's awesome. Well, hopefully we'll have some results next year. <laughs> All right, Dr. Schneider. Thank you very much. And uh, to everyone else, we'll be uh, probably back next month with another podcast. So. Stay tuned and everybody have a, a great day. Thanks for joining in on the Chiropractic Science Podcast. Bye-bye for now.